Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 10. Turn your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Have you uh, ever been asked to do something that you did not want to do? You're laughing because I guess you obviously have experienced that before, that you have been asked to do something that maybe you did not want to do. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe it was, well, it could be actually now in the job that you're at now. Uh, it could be a teacher. It could be a, a job that you had younger that maybe someone asked you to do something that maybe you said this, I didn't sign up for that. Uh, sometimes I feel like ministry, I tell Alan and Shane this often, that sometimes in ministry, that when we're here, that sometimes uh, there are things that we do that they didn't necessarily describe in the job description, uh, but that's okay, that's just part of it. Well, I remember one of the first things that I experienced about uh, kind of having to be forced to do something I didn't want to do was my, I just ended my freshman year in college, and I started interning at First Baptist Church in Ravel uh, to be their youth intern. Deanna Corbett, who was our uh, youth minister at the time, and she had asked, she said, James, I'd love for you to come. You could come and kind of get your feet wet and kind of figure out about ministry. And uh, I, she said, look, I'll really kind of help turn the reins over to you, and you can get a lot of experience. And so you can help plan our Bible studies. You can help plan mission trips. You can... <laughs> Uh, help with uh, VBS, anything that you want to do. She said, I'm going to basically help you. I'm going to get your feet wet. And really, I'm going to turn a lot of things over to you. I'm going to help guide, but I want you to get your feet wet in doing it. So I said, awesome. I mean, that, that sounds great. Remember, I started. I said, man, this is awesome. I get to uh, work on Bible studies and teach kids and small groups. And I was just super excited until the first week of on the job. And I believe it was a Tuesday morning. And she says, hey, this whole summer, there's something that I'm going to get you to do every single week. She said, here's what's going to happen every Tuesday morning. You're going to get here right when you get here, and you're going to go to the gym. You're going to go get a yellow mop bucket. You're going to go fill it with water. You're going to fill it with cleaning solution. And every Tuesday morning, you're going to mop the gym floor. Every week. Well, I remember when she told me this, you know, my, and of course, outwardly, I was like, okay, sure, awesome, that'd be great, you know, <laughs> can't, can't wait to do that, you know, and inside I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, this is not what I signed up for. Uh, I mean, I'm supposed to be teaching Bible study, I'm supposed to be hanging out with students, I'm supposed to be planning mission trips, I'm not supposed to be mopping the gym floor every Tuesday morning. And I'll confess this to you. I had a lot of sinful thoughts running through my head as this happened. There were several thoughts of one of like, this is not what this is not my job. Uh, I remember thinking this, and actually it's funny. I told him I, he was in my sermon today. Michael Anderson, who's over here, who's been the longtime custodian at First Baptist Church, and Michael and I are very good friends and text weekly, probably. And uh, I remember thinking this, and this I, I said, look, we have Michael. This is his job. That's a very sorry thing for me to say in my mind, but I said, this is, he, he signed up to be the custodian. He gets paid to do this. This is his job. Why am I doing it? I remember thinking, that's very sinful, but I remember thinking this in my mind, like, why am I doing this? I didn't question her, but in my mind I was questioning a lot. Why in the world would you make me do this? I, I would say this. I think there's a lot of things in our life that we may get asked to do that we like. I didn't sign up for that. Uh, maybe we're 
forced to do things. Maybe we're asked to do things. And really what we're going to look at this morning is exactly that. Really, the truth that we're going to see this morning is something that you would say, I don't know if I signed up for that. You know, there's a lot of things in Christian life like, man, that sounds awesome. This is not one of them. This is not one of the things that we just want to highlight this truth in our life. But I hope you see as we've been going through our DNA series, Building Blocks of a Healthy Church, this is essential for a healthy church for every member to adopt this living. So if you take notes, here's the main idea this morning as we continue our series. This is value number seven, and it says healthy churches value servant living. Healthy churches value servant living, meaning every member, every Christian is called to be a servant. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter what title you might have, every single Christian, every single member is called to be a servant. And hopefully you will see that truth this morning. So you should have your Bibles turned to Mark chapter 10. We will look in verses 35 through 45 this morning. Verse 35, it says this, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him talking about Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you ask of me? And they said to him, Grant us that we would grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized in the baptism of which I am about to be baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, Take the cup that, I, that you will drink, and the baptism in which I will be baptized, and you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those who has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be a servant." And whoever must be first among you must be slaves of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Basically what we'll do, just to kind of lay out how we'll structure this passage, is really what I want to do is I just want to walk through the passage. We'll just start in verse 35, walk through, and at the end I just want to have a few points of application of how we can apply this passage to our life. So first of all, I just want you just, 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 for your, uh, just to know and just for context reason, just to know where we are in the story. If you turn over or in your phone or in your Bible and you look over at chapter 11, the title of it should say the triumphal entry. So you know that this is right before Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, knowing that at the end of this week he will go to the cross, he will be crucified, and then as we know the story, three days later he will be resurrected in power and in glory. But this is, takes place really right before this, and you see that James and John come to Jesus basically to ask a question. Now, uh, you see this in this passage, but you also, if you flip over to Matthew, Mark chapter 9, it's a similar thing. The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Uh, Sometimes, I don't know if you feel this way, but I I feel like I align myself and I see myself in the disciples a lot because they were hard-headed. 
They didn't get it a lot of the times. They, Jesus had to repeat himself often to them because they didn't grasp it in their own life. And you see them, they're arguing again, but now it's just two of them, and it's James and John. Now, just for reference, do you remember, obviously he called 12 people to be his 12 disciples. There were more disciples than that, but that was kind of his inner circle. We had an inner circle within the inner circle, which was three men, James and John, brothers, and Peter. If you remember uh, when Jesus goes on to the Mount Transfiguration where he is transfigured, remember there's three men there, there, James, John, and Peter. Remember when he goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's three people that go even farther with him, James, John, and Peter. And so these are the, kind of the inner circle of the disciples. So you see probably clearly that James and John say, well, we get included in a lot of stuff that the other guys don't get included on. And we obviously must be greater. Now, obviously, Peter's probably going to be mad because he gets X'd out of this deal. Uh, and so you see that he's like not mentioned. It's just James and John. And I want you to look. He comes and they ask a question. They come up to him respectfully. They say, teacher, they said, we want to ask you to do something. And here's what they say. Before we ask it, go ahead and tell us that we have it. Now, this is a very childish question. And a very childish response. I don't know. I know I've done this before to my parents. You probably have done it to yours. Or if you're a parent, you probably have children that have done the same thing. That they say, hey, look, we got a question for you. Can you just go ahead and say yes first? And then I'll ask you what I want to ask you. It's like immediately parents, like the red alarm goes off. It's like you're trying to either slip something by me or you're trying to trick me into saying yes to something. But this is exactly what the disciples do. That They're like, hey, Jesus... We're going to ask you a question, but first just give us the yes, and then, we'll ask, and then we'll ask the question. But here's what's crazy, and I love this about Jesus, is he goes along with it. He says, okay, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Now, I love this about Jesus. Jesus obviously knows. Jesus is God. Jesus knows their heart. Jesus knows their intention and knows their selfish intention and what they're about to ask. But I love that Jesus still asks them anyway says, hey, what is it you want me to do? I think many times, especially in the Gospels, why Jesus asked the question is not for his benefit, but for theirs. That he's asking to probe them for them to actually hear it come out of their mouths, to hear exactly this selfish and sinful tendencies that these disciples had. So he asked the question, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, here's what we want. We want you to grant us to sit at your right hand and your left hand and so that we may be seated with you in glory. Now, you can, by this request, you can still kind of get the picture that the disciples still do not understand what's taking place. Right before this, the third time, Jesus has predicted his death. But you see it very clearly in the disciples that they didn't get it. Uh, they were thinking he's the Messiah, which he was, but they were thinking that he's about to actually execute his reign today, that actually he's about to take over, Rome will be destroyed, Jerusalem and uh, all of uh, Israel will now be exalted again, and Jesus Christ will now take his seat at the throne, and he will be in glory. And so here's what they're asking. Hey, as we're about to go to Jerusalem, as we're about to enter into all this glory and power, here's our request for you. We want to sit, one at the right hand, one at the left hand. Now, in this culture, this is typically the way the structure was. Uh, whether it was at a banquet, whether it was in a kingdom, whoever sat in the middle took the place of honor. That was the honor seat. It was the person who was bestowed on the greatest glory, the greatest honor. But there was also two positions that sat right beside, the right and the left. And the people who sat the right or left obviously were not in the middle, but because the middle sat with glory and allowed them to sit at the right or left hand, they consequently got glory as well. 
they also got power as well. They got esteemed highly that the person in the middle would just ask them to sit at your right hand or left hand. Well, as you see this, you may say, well, man, James and John are really humble people. They want Jesus to be seated in glory. They want him. Notice who they put in the middle. They don't put themselves in the middle, right? They put Jesus. They said, hey, look, you're going to be in the middle. You are going to be in glory. You are the seat of honor and the seat to be praised. As just humble servants of you, we would just ask if you would just allow us this humble request to sit at your right hand or your left hand. The problem is that their request is all but humble. I want you to notice what this commentator said. He said this, The brothers hope to honor Jesus while honoring themselves. How easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest. Worse, many times self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. That these men were not even thinking about Jesus, they were just thinking about themselves. They really had no interest in Jesus taking the seat of honor. They just wanted the seat of honor. How often do you and I do the same? When I was reading over this, um, I read that comment by the commentator about that. And I remember when I read it, I, I walked into Shane's office and I read it to him. I walked into Alan's office, I read it to him, and I said, that'll preach. And I said, man, when I read that Sunday, that will preach. And the moment I went back in my office, James says, you know I'm talking about you, right? I'm not thinking about anybody else but you. This is your problem. I mean, if it hits somebody else in there, that's good for them. But you know I'm talking about you, right? I love when Jesus does that to me. I, I, I get a point, I'm like, man, that, that's going to hit hard on Sunday. He says, yeah, it's going to hit hard today in your life. Because I'm not talking to them, I'm talking to you. How often can we mask some things and make them sound honorable and noble and pure, but yet all wrapped up deep down we just care about ourselves? Confession. Again, you're going to say my pastor's awful. (laughs) I see this in my heart all the time. Preaching. Is my desire when I preach and I come to the pulpit, is it so that your hearts are drawn to Jesus and so that the moment you walk out of this place, your hearts have been stirred, your affections have been stirred to Jesus, or do I want that, but consequently you pat me on the back and I get glory as well? Do I want First Baptist Church, Monroe, to grow and become healthy and flourish and thrive so that God gets glory, or is that I also get glory as well? Look, it's a rough week for me when God's probing in my life. Because here's what's interesting is, look, I do want God to get glory. I do want Him exalted. But here's what's crazy. It's just, and sometimes in a very subtle, it's never this obvious, but a very subtle way, sometimes we we want God to be glorified so that we are too. Sometimes even, we can think about this even in church life, that sometimes we mask our things of like, and we maybe make it sound real noble and all this kind of stuff, when really we just want our preference. 
when really we just want what we want. We just mask it in a thing of like, well, I felt the Spirit lead me to this, or I think God would get the most glory this way, when really it's like, I just really want what I want. It's funny that many times, well, I, don't, I, I guess I shouldn't assume about you, I can just say it about me. Many times that's the way that I am in my life. It's exactly what you see right here in the disciples, is that while it seemed to be that they were honoring Jesus, really they just wanted honor for themselves. How often do we do that even in our own life? Now, right after this, he, he basically poses this question to them. He says, you don't know what you're asking. He says, you're asking to sit at my right and left hand, but you do not understand what you're asking in asking this question. Because then he says this, are you able to drink the drink that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized in what I'm about to be baptized in? Are you, are you able to do this and, of course, pridefully... James and John look and says, yes, we are. I guess that's sometimes when we're all about ourself and self-serving and self-glory. A lot of times we're deceived. And you see very clearly that they say we are able. And then he poses back to them, well, whether you're able to or not, you will drink of this cup and you will be baptized in this baptism. Now, what is meant by this as he uses this phrase, are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized in the baptism I'm about to be baptized in? And here's what he's pointing to is he's pointing to suffering. Notice the context and notice what's about to take place in his life. Many times the cup, if you know this, was, was to symbolize the wrath of God. Down at the very end of this, he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And he says, to give his life as a ransom for many. Meaning this, at the end of this, he's, about to, he's been telling them over and over again, I'm about to give up my life. And he says, do you realize that before glory happens, before you're, the Messiah you're thinking of, before that can take place, First, I have to be the suffering servant. First, I have to experience the cross before there's the resurrection. Before there's glory, I have to suffer. And he says, can you do the same? It's it's interesting, we do this a lot, that we want the crown, we just don't want the cross. It's like we want want the glory, we want to like, Lord, I want to reign with you, but here's the thing, we don't want to actually suffer with Jesus. And actually, Jesus actually looks at them and says, guess what, whether you can or can't, you are actually going to suffer. Now, if you, I don't want you to flip over there, but if you flip over to Acts chapter 12, James, this same person, was one who was killed with a sword and was martyred for his belief in Christ. If you look at John, remember John obviously was suffered greatly. He did not die a martyr's death, but he died exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He was one that intensely was suffered for the sake of Jesus. Many of the disciples, even if you think of Peter, was crucified upside down. For his Savior. He's saying, look, you don't realize what you're asking. You don't realize what I'm about to do. You don't understand what true greatness really looks like. And that's the whole point that he's really building up to. And then he makes a statement. And by the way, I can't grant you this because it's not mine to grant. This is up to God. My Father is the one who grants this. My Father is the one who does this. Now, look at verse 41. After he says all this, it says this, When the ten heard it, it says that they became angry at James and John. They were furious at what James and John had brought up. Now, you see very clearly, if you think the two are bad, the rest of the ten are just as bad. Why are they angry? They're not angry at James and John to say, why did you ask such a request? Shame on you. They says, they're trying to get in before we can. We want to be seated at the right hand or left hand. They just beat us to it. 
I mean, you, you see the anger in them. Their, their anger was not over their self-pride, self-serving attitude. Their pride was that we want to sit at the right hand or left hand. You see, even in the ten, they're just as bad. I'm sure, well, I'm sure Peter, being the hothead he was, I'm sure he had something to say. I, we, don't, we don't have that recorded because it could have been very sinful. I don't know what Peter said to him. He could have, you know, the, the ear when he cut off, the, he could have cut off James's ear and Jesus had to put it back. I don't know what happened, but I know this. Peter was probably not a happy camper at this, saying, are you kidding me? I'm a part of the inner circle too and you cut me out and you go to, to Jesus before I can get to him. But you see very clearly that they don't get it and I love that Jesus does this. Jesus uses this opportunity always as a teaching moment and says, look, this is not how it's supposed to be. And this is not how my kingdom is to work and this is not how the followers of me are to operate. And he takes this and he moves down and he says this in verse 42. He says, Jesus called them and said to them, He said, you know that those who consider rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And so in a sense what he's saying is bring about whether they're, they're lords, whether they're kings, whether people in high authority because of their fame, power, wealth, whatever it may be. He says typically the way that we define greatness is usually someone who has power, someone who has authority over people, uh, someone who has maybe lots of money, lots of fame, whatever it may be. He says this is how, in a sense, he's saying this, this is how the world defines greatness. And then he moves and he says this in verse 43. He says, but it shall not be so among you. As followers of Jesus, this is not how you're to operate. You're not to operate based on the kingdom of the world. You're to operate based on my kingdom and the principles of my kingdom. Now, it says this in 43. It says, it shall not be, almost has this idea of like a future sense, but it's not in the Greek, it's not that way. He's saying right now, not futuristic. He says right now it should not be this way. This is not how you're to act. And he goes on to say this. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He defines greatness by the bigness of your service. He says, if you really, really want to be great, be a servant. That makes no sense at all. Does it? If you want to be great... Be the least. You see, almost see how, how infiltrated we are by the kingdom of the world because that doesn't make sense to us. It's actually illogical. I mean, like, how, by making myself less, how does that make me more? It doesn't make sense. But, of course, we understand this. That's how the kingdom of God operates. It's not the way that we always think it should be. Now, this word is a used for servant or the word he used for service. Here's what it literally means. It means this, to wait tables. He says, literally, this is what you're to do. If you want to be great, you need to start waiting tables. Now, is he calling for all of us to be waitresses and waiters at restaurants? I don't think that's necessarily what he's getting at. But, but let's think about that for a second. If you've ever been a waiter or a waitress at a restaurant, how often did you tell people what to do? Probably not. Well, I guess if, you're, well, if you had a job for any length of time, you probably didn't tell very many people what to do. They told you what to do whether it was the cooks, whether the people that own the restaurant, or the people you're serving, many times they tell you what they want. They tell you what to do. You don't tell anybody what to do. All you do is literally you're taking orders, getting stuff from the cook, and bringing it back. That's, what, and that's the whole idea here is that he says in this sense of service is literally you are to wait tables for people. 
this word also, there's several words actually in the Greek language that mean servant or service, but this specific one has this connotation of love. That you're serving or waiting tables based upon your love for the other person. It's not rooted in duty, it's rooted in love. It's not that you're doing it because you're getting paid to do it. It's not you're doing it because it's your job. You're doing it out of love for the next person to you. This is the idea of service or servant he's calling you and I are to be. Now he goes on to say this, and to me this gets even more radical. Verse 44. He said, Whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. We, we, could have, we should have just stopped with the first one. Like Jesus could have been fine there. He takes it up a notch and says, Here, if you really want to be first, if you really want to be great, here's the thing. You need to be a slave to all. I'm about to translate it, and this is going to sound really weird for me to translate it this way, but I want to just grasp what he's saying. Every person you meet is your master. That sounds fun. Now, understand this in the context of Jesus Christ is our master, right? I mean, who do we follow? We follow Jesus. We don't follow the world. We don't follow people. But here's, in a sense, what he's getting at. There is not a single person that you will ever meet that's underneath you. Here's what he's actually saying is every person that you meet, every person you encounter, you are literally to take yourself and place yourself under them. Everybody. Is that what you signed up for when you accepted Jesus in your heart? Like, man, I want to be a slave to all. I want to have to put myself underneath everyone. You're like, James, thanks, thanks for preaching today, man. <laughs> I, I tell you all, th- these are the words I wish like Jesus wouldn't have said this. Because that, that confronts me right where I am. It begins to make me look of how do I treat people. And here's interesting. You actually may hold a title above someone, and he's saying, guess what? But you're still not actually above them if you're a servant of Jesus. That literally, if you hold a title over someone, you're still to place yourself under them. That, that doesn't make sense. But let's think about this, and he's about to get to this whole point. Think about who has the greatest title in the universe. Jesus. The King of kings and the Lord of lords submitted himself, submitted himself to these men, washed their feet, served them, and then was crucified for them. He had the greatest title in the universe. And you see over and over again, he says in the next statement, he says this, the Son of Man, me, the Messiah, I did not come to be served. Actually came to serve. And he says this really the ultimate display of service is he says this, and I'm gonna give my life up for them. I'm gonna give my life up for you. Think how crazy this sounds. The Creator died for the creation, the perfect died for the sinful, the Master died for the servants. That does not make sense. He's pumping this up to say, who are you to say that you're not to be a servant? Why? Because your Savior was a servant Himself. He said He willingly subjected Himself to the point of death to serve us who were sinful, 
rebels against everything in God's kingdom. And he says, even though you were a rebel, I still died for you and I served you. I submitted myself to you. And he's saying, who are you, who am I to say that I'm not, willing, I'm not beneath anybody or you know, I'm important or I have a title? He says, you need to throw all of that junk away because I myself did not come for people to serve me. I came to actually serve people. And this is this whole idea that he's bringing about. He says, this is how it is to be among you. Now, just in points of application, I just have two this morning that I want to bring out to see and kind of, in a sense, to wrap up all that Jesus is saying in this passage. So number one is this. Living for yourself goes against God's kingdom. Living for yourself goes against God's kingdom. You see this contrast that takes place this whole passage. In a sense, he's saying this. Either you're living for yourself or you're living for others. One is living for self. One's living for others. One's self-serving. One's serving others. Is this contrast taking place. One is a part of the kingdom of this world. One is a part of the kingdom of God. And so he's pointing out this whole thing. How are you behaving, in a sense, reveals what kingdom you're a part of. It's almost like he's saying this. If you're constantly living for yourself, if you're constantly self-serving, he's saying this. Then what kingdom are you really a part of? Because a part of my kingdom, those people who truly follow me are not to live for themselves. They're not to be self-serving, but they're, they're to use everything that they have in their power to serve others. So here's the... I don't know if you caught this, but as you read through this whole passage, there's this glaring question that is right in the room that's confronting us, and it's this question. Which one are you? Are you a person who's living for yourself? Are you living for Christ and others? Are you living to serve yourself? Or are you living to serve others? I want to do this because you say, well, how do I know? Well, let me probe a little more. You're probably like, joy, thank you for probing a little more in our life. But I want to probe a little more to ask a few questions because here's what I've recognized and, and here's what I want to say. I want to ask you a few questions and I just want you to think about them in your mind. You don't have to answer them out loud. So as I say that, you can be truthful. Uh, Jesus already knows your heart, uh, so you don't have to try to trick him. Uh, many times I've noticed this is that we try to mask uh, our self-serving and we try to mask it in something noble. And many times the reality is still just self-serving. So let me ask you a few questions. Number one. Do you serve to get noticed? Or do you serve caring if no one sees you? Do you serve so that people will notice you? And notice what you do? Or do you serve not caring if anyone sees anything you do? Now this seems like a, not an easy question. But I would say for most of us, and I think it's kind of hiding our sinfulness, we might say, well, you know... I don't serve so that people notice me. I just do my thing. I, you know, I serve. Let me give you an example of my own life. I do a great job serving here. Or, well, hold on. That's prideful. <laughs> Let me take that back. That's sinful. I try. Let me say that. I try. I try to do my very best job of serving here in a sense of this. If there's something that needs to be done, I would like to think that I try to do my best to serve here. But here's the thing. Every time that I serve here, somebody's watching me. Here's, what, here's, here's where God was really, was really challenged me on. What happens when you go home? 
Or you still have the servant mentality around your wife? Nobody's going to see that. They're going to see you up here. They're going to see you if you tote chairs around here. They're going to see that. Even though I say, well, you know, I don't care if anybody notices or if I do something around, like, I don't care if anybody pats me on the back. But here's the reality. Start really digging deep. Do I still serve with the same intensity here as I do when I go home when no one else watches me? Am I still serving my wife and my kids or am I self-serving when I go home? I don't know about for you. That, that's, I think that's one of the things that I see, and that's why I pray for Kirsten that she puts up with me because she almost sees this, this two-face in me because here's for a lot of us. We serve well around people, but when we go home, it's kind of like, all right, let me just, like, this is me time. Like, I've been doing this all day. People have been calling me. I've been talking all day. When I get home, I can kind of disengage and not care and just do my thing. But here's the reality. Am I still serving even when no one looks at me? That's, that's convicting, isn't it? Because I think, uh, well, first when I ask this question myself, I'm like, I think that's true. And then God's like, starts probing on me and is like, you really think? Sometimes, James, you serve because you want people to see it. Because when people don't see you, that's when you serve the least. Second question. Do I always go first or do I let others go first? Now, this is convicting for me because I like to eat. And typically when we're in a line for food... Uh, it's funny, similar to here. When I'm in here and we're eating in the line, I will wait to be the last one. When I go home, I'm the first one to eat. <laughs> Kirsten still has the baby in hand and I'm already eating my food. That's similar to this whole about being noticed. I'll, I'll go last here at home. I'm not going last. I want to eat first because I'm hungry. But it's not just with food. Do I have the mentality of that I go first or that others go first? Number three. Am I always talking about myself and my problems or am I listening to others? Let me say this too. Obviously, if you talk about yourself, that's not bad. It's not bad to tell people things that are going on in your life. But if you notice a trend that every time you're speaking, that you're always just talking about yourself, either in a good way or bad way, or are you taking time to listen to others? Number four, this is, this is a probing one as well. Am I insecure in my identity with Jesus or am I secure in my identity of Jesus? Meaning this, you and I, and I, as I read this whole passage of James and John, I think for many of us the reason why we struggle with self-serving is because every single person in this room, you want to be valued, you want to be noticed, you want to be heard, you want people to know your name? I, look, I get that. I think that's just part of life. We, we want to be valued. We want to be noticed. We, we, we want those things. But here's what I found out in my own life. Insecurity in who you are in Jesus breeds self-centered living. When you are insecure with who you are in Jesus, it begins to breed in your life living out self-centered living. But the opposite is true. When you're secure in your relationship with Jesus, you don't have to prove who you are to anybody. Meaning this... Jesus already has valued me. Jesus already has seen me. Jesus already has heard me. Jesus already has noticed me. It, and I've seen this too. The people that you see that serve the best, or I would, I would be willing to say those are people that are probably most secure in who they are in Jesus. Why? It's because they don't have to do it for the applause. They don't have to do it to find value because they already find it in who Jesus is and in who Jesus says they are. Number five. Which mentality are you? 
The church exists to serve my needs and my preferences, or I exist to serve the church and the community. The church exists to serve my needs and my preferences, or do I exist to serve the church and the community? Can I be honest on this point? I need to move on. The most unhealthy churches that exist today are churches that just are inward focusing. I'll say this, the churches in the next 5 to 10 to 15 years that will die are the churches that just think about themselves. The churches that fight amongst themselves, the, first, the, the churches that are constantly, well, this is what I want, this is what's been done, whatever it may be. I think this is a radical way to think about church. I think it's a correct way to think about church. But for many of us, when we come to church, we have this entitlement that when I come to church, however long I've been at church, however much money I give to church, that entitles me to tell people what to do. I've heard of churches this way that say this, if you don't do what I want, I'm not going to give my tithe. Whoa. How sinful is that? If you don't do what I want, I'm going to pull my funds from your church. But here's what's crazy. That probably happens all the time. It has to move past this idea of of, of why is a healthy church's servant living? Because they're not focused on themselves. They're focused on others in the community. That's what breeds a, a healthy church. And that's for us as we look at our mentality of saying, which one am I? Am I the person that's looking to serve myself or am I the person that's looking to serve others? Here's why this is such a big deal. Because living a self-centered life goes completely against the kingdom of God. That is why Jesus very clearly, very pointedly in this passage says, this is why you're called to serve. Because this is the way of my kingdom. This is the way that I live. This is the way that I've modeled for you. And this is the way that you are to now live your life. You are to live it based on a servant. So, number two is this. You are never more like Jesus than when you serve. Number two. You are never more like Jesus than when you serve. Now, I'm sure many of you maybe have said to the point, or you've said this in your life at some point, that I want to be like Jesus uh, maybe you've worn the bracelet before, the WWJD bracelet. What would Jesus do? Well, I know exactly what Jesus would do, and that was He would serve. Uh, that's constantly what Jesus did. And if we really want to... And I would say this, and I, I've kind of caught myself as I was studying this week. Because I said this, I want to be like Jesus. Being like Jesus means that I become a servant and a slave to all. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus was a servant. That's exactly what He did. And so am I willing to do that? That's exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. He is calling us to serve. Now, just just to remember, this word does not mean to do it out of duty, but to do it out of love. You're not doing it out of your sense of duty. You're doing it out of your sense of love. So here, here I can say this. Here's why you can never live like this until you experience the amazing love, selfless love of Jesus Christ. What he's talking about here, you will never be able to live in this manner if you don't know Jesus. 
Almost, it's almost you could almost do the reverse this way. If you say that you love Jesus but don't live this way, you could say, have you truly experienced the selfless love of Jesus? It's motivated in what He first did for us. For, God, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is exactly what He is calling us to do. And you cannot live this way if you do not know Jesus. If you have not encountered His selfless, self-giving love that He's given as He died on the cross and through the resurrection, if you have not experienced it, you cannot live this way. So here's what we see. You and I are called to serve and be a servant. So I want to practically look at how are ways that we can serve. But here's what we need to understand. Most of the ways that we serve are going to look very ordinary. You're probably not going to have Shane uh, come behind you and sing as you do it. Uh, You'll probably be by yourself. Uh, There won't be a pastor to pump you up, to preach to you right before you serve. It's many times, sometimes many times in inconvenient circumstances. Many times it's things that aren't these humongous things that we think about. Sometimes it's these menial, everyday things that you and I have ways to serve. We now need to understand this, is that sometimes when you actually live this way, you're going to get stepped on, that you're going to get used. I, I remember immediately you're like, whoa. Being a Christian, I mean, I don't want to be stepped on, and I want to be used. I don't either, but here's the reality. is being a servant to all, here's what I know. You will be stepped on. You will be used. But that's what the whole point is. Because it's not about you. And it's not about me. So, what are ways that we can serve? Maybe it means that after a long day of work, we come home and we don't live for ourselves. This is speaking to me. When I come home from work, I get home... Maybe the first thing I should ask is, Kirsten, what do you need me to do? And I understand as I said that, guys, you're probably like, James, shut your mouth. (laughs) Quit saying that. But it's the reverse for the wife as well. To think about when we come home, I, I would say this, and I think this is just in general. We give our best usually to people all around us, and we don't give our best when we get home. One of the best ways that you and I can serve is when we get home to those, our family, our children, our spouse, to not just think about ourselves, but to think about others. Another way may be this. It may be for students as you go back to school. Maybe there's a kid that no one likes and a kid that no one talks to and a kid that no one sits by. One of the best ways that you can serve is what if you befriended that person? Now, here's what I understand. You may befriend that person, and people may be like, well, he's weird. You shouldn't do that. He could be. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Maybe it's getting out of your way in what you usually do at school and looking at looking to see needs all around you. I know y'all talked about this at D now. You realize this? There, there, there's needs that are going on all around you at school. Every kid that you encounter, do you realize there's so many needy kids in school? And I'm not saying they just need Jesus. They do need Jesus, but there's a lot of kids that you go to school with every single day that their parents are fighting at home and they hear it all the time and they come home and they come to school just to escape. Do you realize you can be the person that prays for them, lifts them up? There's ways that you can serve literally all day, every day at school. 
Maybe it's that. Maybe it means we start treating people if you work and you're the boss or you're someone in high rank. Maybe it means treating the people under you with respect and honor. Maybe it means that instead of just taking all the time in your day, maybe it means to take some moments out of your day to call someone. Maybe it means to go and take a hospital visit, to go visit someone, maybe to go drop something off, maybe go drop food off at someone's house. Maybe it means to serve, maybe it means you do something uncomfortable, you step out of your comfort zone to do something that God's calling you to do. Maybe it means you go on a mission trip. Maybe it means you sign up to help with the nursery. It's a plug for you, Brandy. So that many, there are many moms that have kids and many of them still have to work the nursery. And maybe you could say, well, maybe I can serve the nursery at least once so that moms don't have to be back there and they can actually be in the service. Maybe it's looking at, at the church and uh, after the service, if you want more information, come see me or come by the Connect Room. We have lots of ways you can serve. Maybe saying, you know what, I, I, I would say this, or maybe it's just this, maybe saying, you know what, every day that I wake up, I'm not going to live my life for me. Or maybe it means this, maybe it means you pick up a mop. I'll never forget at the end of the summer uh, when I mopped every Tuesday. I'll never forget at the end of the summer, Deanna sat me in the office and I was about to finish and I, and I was about to go to LSU for the, for the fall. I remember she sat me down and she says, James, and we were just kind of reviewing the summer and all the things that had happened. And she says, James, oh, by the way, would you like to know why you mop the floor every single week? I said, yeah, I would. That'd be great to know that. And she says, James, the reason why I asked you to do that, it was intentional. Obviously, I didn't just do it just to make you do it. I had a reason behind it. I said, well, please share. She says, James, here's what I know. Most likely, you, you have God's call in your life that you sense God's call to go in the ministry. You're going to go on to pursue different jobs at churches. You most likely will probably go on to get your master's degree. Hopefully, maybe one day you'll go on to get your doctorate degree. You're going to begin to be a pastor at a church one day. And she says, here's what I want you to remember for all of your days, you are never too good to mop a floor. She says, James, your Savior who rescued you and saved you was willing to get his hands dirty every single day. He did it because he loved God and he loved people well. James, your call is to mop the floor every day. She says this, James, you are never more like Jesus than when you serve. Let's pray. Jesus, as I think about our life and to think about how you came to serve, God, I think sometimes this is even my own pride welling up in me, but God, sometimes I'm like, I don't feel worthy for you to serve me. God, to think about just how you washed the disciples' feet. God, I bet they felt unworthy of saying, and I know they said this, of, of stop. But God, what's crazy is that we, that's what you came to do. That Jesus, even as we look on the cross, even as I look into my own life and I know my sin, I know my shortcomings, I know my failures. And Jesus, yet you willingly took on sin for me. Jesus, to rescue me, to save me, to connect me again with God. 
You gave me grace and mercy when I didn't deserve it because that's exactly what grace and mercy is. Lord, you gave me unmerited favor when, God, I deserve none of it. And Jesus, I pray as we think of this idea to serve God, this is a radical idea. Jesus, this is steps on our toes because Jesus, many times, to be honest, we live our life to serve ourselves. We live our life about how we want to live it. And God, I say this confessingly in my own life. God, there's many times where I'm not even thinking about others' needs because I'm just worried about my own. And Jesus, I pray in those moments, even this morning, that Jesus, you will help us to see the bigness of the cross that you help us see the bigness of how you did not come to be served, but to serve. And that Jesus, your service, your love, your self-giving love to us would motivate us to turn around and serve and love others. Jesus, as we interact in our day at school, at work, at home, God, there's so many needs around us. And God, I pray you would help us by your Spirit to be aware, God, of the needs and the wants and the hurting and the pain that's going on all around us. And Lord, we would indeed serve. Holy Spirit, I pray during this time that you would stir our hearts and grip our hearts by your truth. And God, you'd help us to respond. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time we're going to move into a time of response. And I, 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 don't, I don't know what God said to you today. But he has been stomping all over my feet all week long. I'm so thankful that God brought up, because honestly, uh, I'd forgotten about the mop. And something had happened this week, and for some reason my mind went right back to that, and it was like, James, have you forgot? Have you forgotten that you were to be a mop holder? You're to be someone who mops the floor. That is who you are. You think you deserve things. You don't. You are never too good to mop a floor. That is what you are called to do as the pastor. Here's what God convicted me with all week. I'm to be the lead server. Many times in churches we put pastors up on a pedestal to say, uh, you know, he's almost untouchable. I don't want to be untouchable because why? Jesus was, he was not untouchable. He was touchable. He was approachable. Why? Because he served people. And I was so convicted in my own life of Jesus that that's what you want me to do. You want me to serve. But understand this, this is what God has called you to do as well. God has called you to be a servant.